Albert Einstein once said that all religions, arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. As today's technology and global risks race ahead of our understanding and stretch the boundaries of humanity, we face unprecedented ethical conundrums. I believe that reaching beyond the sciences and religion to that third branch, the arts, offers essential insight into these challenges. I call ethical decision-making on the borders of humanity, ethics on the edge. We all teeter on the edge. How do we define a life well lived in a partly virtual world? Where do we look for moral guidelines and truth when curated selves befriend each other through algorithms? How do we make conscionable decisions in the uncharted territory of civilian space travel, designer genetics, and artificial intelligence? And what about the problems that are still on the ethical edge, but shouldn't be, such as inequality or racism? Please join me in conversation with some of the world's leading artists and arts world pioneers as we explore some of today's most challenging ethical questions through the lens of the visual and performing arts, architecture, and literature. Mr. Geary, thank you so much for having me. Truly, it's an honor to be here. We're going to talk about some ideas around ethics and how people make decisions in today's complicated world that is infused with technology, global risks, and unfortunately, some forces that many of us wish were not around. You think, um, you'd think that with all the positive technology, the positive inventions, we'd be getting ourselves to a better place, but it seems to be going the other way, doesn't it? Just from the point of view uh, of great art, architecture, uh, how influential do you think the arts are on the ethics of society in their own time and then on, on subsequent generations? Do you think the arts influences how people make decisions, what their ethical principles are, or do you think they stand alone as artistic endeavors? You know, I'm working with the Devon Orchestra in Europe, mm. which is with Daniel Bernboim. The working together with a group of people from different cultures, different uh, different ethics, different backgrounds, uh, who are in, in in conflict constantly, and to watch them play music together seamlessly, which requires a, a collaboration and a friendship, and to live basically through days of rehearsal and performance and travel and, and still maintain a, a kind of a familial relationship. That model, um, it's small, not whether, whether it can be magnified. It's a fantastic example though. Um, do you think, we were just talking earlier about thinking about the world as, and what matters as something bigger than ourselves. Do you think that that's a little bit about the fact that the musicians are thinking about the music and the sound of the orchestra and the, and the effort of the orchestra to produce something bigger than themselves? Well, they're very young, the kids, uh, and they're monitored carefully by their families and their, um, their families are in dispute with each other, uh, but somehow they maintain this 
connection, and I don't know whether it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a feeling of humanity of the, they know something's good about it, right? They're, Something that helps them withstand the pressure of their differences in their families. Yeah, so whether it, it's by, na by its nature an ethical construct of some sort. So to, to continue with the discussion about the orchestra, the real ethical position was created by Daniel uh, Birnbaum and mm -hmm. Edward Said, mm -hmm. who felt that, who believed that disparate voices could, could come together through the arts. And it's something that I participated in before with Tom Krenz in Abu Dhabi, where he asked me to be part of a, a new Guggenheim in Abu Dhabi. And I was reluctant to start it because I didn't know the culture. Uh, they're not an open culture. They're not easy to, to connect with. I don't know what their ethics are. Interesting. So you don't know where they draw lines, where they start and stop. So Tom convinced me to participate because it would be a museum that would be bring together people from the Arab nations and the Western nations and the world. And the, so this would be, a, for the first time, a museum that could bring artists from Syria and Africa and China, wherever. So based on that, I accepted the, the project. I went there, spent time, met the, met the Emiratis. I did sit with the Sheikh Mohammed, who was the head of it, and we were talking about Israel. And that must have been quite a discussion. Yeah, and he said all the right things. I come from a Jewish family, so I, I don't like what's going on in Israel but now, but um, there's still that hook. Because in the 30s, I was, I was when, when the state of Israel was founded and all that, I remember an event in Canada where my father spoke. My father was not educated at all, had no high school, no, not even grade school. He was a, a street kid, got up at a small gathering of, of the Jewish community in this town where there were only 30 Jewish families, and spoke eloquently about the importance of the state of Israel. And so that <coughs> clicked me, right? I trying to find that reason to be connected. And it's more, more and more difficult as, as Israel participates in actions that I don't believe in. That project was actually motivating for you for the ethics reason, for the reason of bringing together different cultures, even though getting to an understanding of that culture is, is quite difficult. So the actual goal is ethical. Right, and we did have meetings with curators from those different cultures. And the meetings, when we were talking about art, were very communal and friendly. The meeting broke up and there was obvious hostility. Oh, interesting. So again, the around, around the art, there was a coming together. Right. And then as soon as the common project, whether it's an orchestra or the museum. Well, the orchestra is different. I spent a week in Buenos Aires with the Devon. And it was right a couple of years ago when the Gaza thing was really heating up and they were 
getting phone calls and texts from their parents. And you would have thought that would, would have broken it all up. Instead, they, it was five days. I went to rehearsals. I went to the concerts. Uh, we had dinner after the concert with all the players and uh, Daniel. And Miriam Saeed was there. And then um, after dinner, they were drinking. The kids were dancing. And it was all friendly. And all during that week, every time I said to somebody, you're Israeli, right? I would get, I never got it right. Right. Never got it Interesting. right. Interesting. It was always different, so. Interesting. So you mentioned uh, Daniel Barenboim and, uh, and Saeed, and then in, in the case of the museum in Abu Dhabi yourself, artists that are deriving projects that have an ethical intent. To what extent do you think artists have an ethical responsibility? Do you think that uh, artists or great, great architects, I mean, I know in your case you've talked about, it, it almost seems like it's blurring the lines because people talk about you and art and architecture together and, and you talk about your own passion for art. But do you think that you have a responsibility as an architect and, the, and that writers and artists have a responsibility? Or is it just that sometimes there's a project with, uh, with an ethical intent or that sometimes um, artists think about it and, and that's just um, sort of happenstance? Well, I guess there's two ways to think about it. One is, is to be a, the pure artist and to say that what I'm going to say and do is ne neutral to all these forces and take it or leave it. The implication is that it's above ethic. I mean, the idea of art, what you, brought, you brought it up, art and architecture, is that architecture was always a high art. So it was an up upgrade to become an architect back then. In our times, the architect is subverted somehow to technology and other things. But I hope I'm practicing the art of architecture. <laughs> and in your case, the aesthetic decision has to stand up and it has to be lived in and it has to withstand time. Right. So, so it's all the, the more challenging. Um, the ethics of it is that as the deal we make with our brethren is that if we build a building, it's going to be for the better of humanity. It's going to be to make their lives richer. So if there's an ethic, that's a standard that we set ourselves. And, and I adhere to some personal standard, I mean, that, that I try not to go below. So with respect to your personal standards, where do you get your, your personal true north, your personal, your principles? Is it, uh, I've read, you know, there's religion in your background and you, you talk in certain interviews about the Talmudic kind of why question. Um, is it other arch, artists or architects? Is it um, other family members? You mentioned your father and the, the, and the discussion about Israel. Is it political leaders, I shudder to say? Life experiences, um, where do you get your those standards that you refer to? I think I grew up with, with the idea that we had to be kind to our fellow, fellow man and try to make a better world with, with what you do. I grew up with that somehow. And school, architecture school was always about that. You literally are changing the shape of the world. Well, with little buildings. <laughs> <laughs> Bilbao, so Bilbao was a miracle because 
that was again Tom Krenz, the director of the Guggenheim. So I had, I had partners to play with and Tom himself was an artist and he has a vision. He had an ethic about art and the role of it in the community. And he entrusted me with this museum in Bilbao and, and was sort of the uh, conscience of it for me. We met with all of the city people. They asked if I could do a building that would do for them what the Sydney Opera House did for, Austra for Sydney, Australia. And Meaning from a tourism standpoint? Well, initially. not only that, it was a humanity thing. It was, I mean, Bilbao's a town that was in depression. It was... Uh, politically challenged. Politically challenged. It had the separatists. Uh, people were getting shot. Um, so this was about kids, identity then? Kids were leaving to go to college so that their existence was threatened. And these are people that were part of the wars of, of uh, Frankel. I mean, that's where the mural was done by Picasso. Guernica. <laughs> May I ask you just, um, Bilbao's a great example, but in many of the descriptions of your work, the word context comes up and how you try to get a bit, uh, you take into consideration the well, context. context is, a, is another ethical thing if you want to talk about it no, that exactly. way. Exactly. So, so can you tell me a little bit about how you get to an understanding of the context? I was fascinated by the fact that you said, for example, uh, with Abu Dhabi, it was very hard to come to an understanding of exactly what that context was. Right. But you seem not only to focus on understanding the context and um, finding a respectful place within it, but also actually changing it in, in a very ethically interesting way, and Bilbao is an example of that. It seems that it's sort of a living respect for context that has sort of taken on a life well, of Well, when own. I got there, and this happens to me all the time anyway, no matter where I go, some form of hatred, I don't know what, it's varying degrees of it, but in Bilbao, it manifested itself in an article in the newspaper saying, shoot the American architect. <laughs> Goodness. So, uh, because? because they didn't want to be treated, you know, like little babies. Like a foreigner comes in to fix their problems. Yeah, we're going to fix your thing. And they had a history of art there. They had a pretty good background in it, and they were suffering, and they didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I knew Eduardo Chida, the sculptor, who I was friends with, so I had one connection. But after the building was built, the people that said that, came around and took me to dinner and thanked me. Wow. When I got there and started, it was a rundown community. Shipping industry was dead. The, the factories were closing. Kids were leaving and so on. So today, this funny little museum, which was built for 300 bucks a square foot, nobody wants to believe that either. The, Architectural journal. Yeah, the budget was quite something, yeah. Just recently there was an article that said it was very expensive, which it wasn't. <laughs> it re-energized? It, three, three and a half billion euros to the city. The separatists in that area have stopped fighting each other. There's this glow in the city like you've never seen. It's just beautiful. People are happy. People are staying there. The art world is... Coming. So that really is an extraordinary example of not just being respectful of the context in which you're going to enter and, and do your, your work, but actually 
have a lasting impact on that context and a dynamic impact on that yeah, context. Yeah, but the, it's important that you don't just go to a town like that, walk in and say, hi-ho, I'm here and make a thing. It was required, and I suppose that's ethical, is take the time to read their literature, look at their art, meet their people, and understand as best you can in a short period of time who they are and what, what they're about. And it was amazing when I got there. And uh, I've become really close friends with them. I could live there. And I'm, it's tempting. If Mr. Trump gets in, I might. <laughs> as I mentioned to you earlier, I thought one of, the, one of the simplest quotes from you is something to the effect you know, that, that you listen and that you pay attention. And in all of the ethics work that I've done, sort of the leitmotif of ethics failure is failure to listen. Right. So I found that fascinating, and in particular in terms of understanding your context. Now, from, from Bilbao to something more mundane, if I may, what do you think are the, are the biggest ethical challenges you face in terms of the running of the business? You, you have quite a number of, of architects and other employees. You have, a, you have clients who, from what I understand from the research, um, must go in for a surprise. They must be willing to work with you in a way that uh, they're not necessarily sure what the outcome's going to be. Um, but what are, your, what are your ethical challenges in running the business? From the day I started, I made a commitment that, to myself, the only way this was going to work is if I was responsible financially to the whatever, wherever I went with this, and that didn't want to borrow money, so I made that a, an important thing, and that everybody who worked for me would get paid. That was important. That doesn't exist now. No, <laughs> oh, that's right. In, in, the, in my world. A lot of kids are working for very, very low wages. And the, the, it's mostly in Europe where the governments have set up the, what they think is ethical, that every project should have a competition. And so the only way people in Europe can do competitions, can afford to, because they don't get paid for them very much, is to hire kids for very little money. So in most, most of the European offices, there's a lot of low-level salaries. I decided that I would stay at this, figure out what the salary ranges were and, and meet them. Every year we'd give them a cost of index, cost of living index upgrade and a bonus. And we've done it. I started in 1964 and uh, the first four or five years I was working day and night and some all-nighters myself to make it work. But I think that's what makes this place solid. So before, when I started working on a project in Israel, it was the first sort of complicated project, I hired a human rights lawyer. And that human rights lawyer has worked for us through all the projects in the Middle East. So when we did Abu Dhabi, and they, they have people on the ground in the Middle East, Human Rights Watch. We never got to build anything, so we're, we're, we didn't get to that point where we're really on the ground. But the client there knew that I had that issue and that if, 
if we started building and they were hiring slave labor and whatever, that that, that would come up. And I talked to the senior people in, the, in Abu Dhabi anyway, the Emiratis, and they were all in agreement, you know, as best as they could. Now, over there, it's difficult. Well, there, there's always a practical application to ethics. Yes. Um, but it sounds like they were quite motivated because if they didn't make it happen, you weren't going to be part of the project. Right. And, but uh, I think that's the one thing my, my brethren haven't done, they, who have gotten into trouble, is it's just real easy to get a representative like a human, human right. rights watch uh, person. But certainly when you look back at the firm, in addition to the work and your great architecture, it's an incredible part of your story to have built a firm like this and to have trained young architects and to have done it in the way that you've described and to set that as a model and whether your brethren, as you put it, follow suit or not, at least there's been sort of a model set. What are the greatest challenges you believe that society faces today? If you had to pick one or two out of the news. Well, I guess honesty is, you know, playing straight with people, what you think and feel having those kind of relationships where you can discuss the, the delicate stuff. The first project in Israel, it started out with all the right caveats and so on, but as I worked on it, I realized it wasn't what I thought it was, that there were a, sh a shift to a, in a direction that Israel had to go or seemed to go that I wasn't interested in. And so I got out of it very quietly, so I didn't hurt anybody's feelings. In fact, hardly anybody knew I got out of it. So you're engaging with some of these global challenges, including if, you know, I mean, there seems to be a global failure of honesty. The, the word mistrust seems to be the leitmotif of the U.S. presidential election, and it certainly is under, undergirding yeah, many of the other issues. Yeah, I understand it with Hillary, because I, I like her. I don't know why everybody hates her and stuff, but the only thing I've come to with her, a woman of her age, grew up at a time, and I've experienced it, all of us have experienced it, that women didn't talk about their private health issues, not even to their own family. And that was, that's very common. To survive in the man's world, you had to, it's going to bring tears to my eyes because I'm so sad about how she's being treated on that issue. Now, I don't know her well enough to know how, how she kept her family together through all that pretty interesting. So when I say that to people, they say, well, she was opportunistic because she was going to become president and she didn't want to screw it up. But when I meet Chelsea and see what kind of person she is, it, she couldn't have come out of nowhere. If I can switch gears uh, for a moment, um, is there an artist uh, who you think has been the most important or who rises to the top in terms of impact on ethical thinking of his or her era or subsequent generations? Is there one artist that comes to mind or a few artists that come to mind in any genre? One of my favorite greatest artists was Bob Rauschenberg. I never discussed ethics with him. I spent a lot of time with him. He opened our eyes to a reality of, of the world. So I suppose that was ethically. Do you have a favorite work? Well, I like the combines. I think the combines were the tri tripping point for me and my work. Uh, growing up in architecture in LA, you, you come from an Asia 
centric uh, aesthetic was prevalent here. And you see it in the Green Brothers, and you see it in a lot of our architect. Interesting. Because it's a wood. So if you look around, you'll you pick it up here. And you look at it in my house and stuff. What the, the willingness to accept that we're living with kind of the junky environment and accept it and turn it positive was Rosenberg. It wasn't that you had to live in junk piles, but you could accept that that's where we were at, that's where humanity was at, that we were building things like that, and they, they could be beautiful if you looked at them a certain way. What role do you think the arts should play in education today? Um, we've seen an awful lot of focus on the technology, uh, and even in major universities, at places like I teach at Stanford and places like Yale, where my, both of my sons went, and um, we see... You where know, I teach. Uh, yeah, exactly, where you <laughs> teach. Um, and uh, we're seeing an increasing focus on the hard sciences and on computer science. And uh, in the high schools, we're seeing uh, we need to do things that are, um, that are job-focused and that are technology-focused. And I think there was even a U.S. senator who said, well, if you want to study French literature, that's fine, but you're not going to get a scholarship to do so. But what, is it, what role do you think the arts should be playing in education today in an increasingly technology-driven um, world? The arts should be the, the spine, I guess, of humanity that per permeates all of us, that holds us together as human beings. It's, it's the lifeboat. Why are we doing the technology? To try to Im improve things for humanity. Right. Do you think it's also to help us look through the lens that I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, to, to look through our world situation through a lens that is so fundamentally human that the arts is? Well, to keep connected to the hum humanity of it. The tendency of the, of the technology is to take you into another world. And I, it's characterized for me when you see the robots with the silver eyes. That's when you've lost it, when, when everything's like that. And I think... So we're not grounded in humanity when we when we're part robots or? Well, I mean, I know this kid Zuckerberg because we're doing some work for him. And right. I, I've spent time with he and his wife and they just put $3 billion into health research right, and stuff. Right, the initiative, right. That's a big gesture. If they follow through on keeping the humanity in what that gesture does, then I'll be proud of them if they just give the money and walk away and say, okay, you guys. That's the first time I've heard anybody speak about a scientific endeavor, the goal of which is to improve humanity in those terms, to say that I'm going to hold you accountable through the extent to which you are able to keep humanity in mind as right. you proceed with this endeavor. That is the first time I've ever heard oh, anybody articulate okay. it like that. It's fantastic. Um, just a couple more questions, if I may. I'd like to come back to this word surprise. Um, in a lot of the reading that I did there, as I mentioned earlier, at least it is said um, that when one signs on, and, and you have obviously very privileged clients who are able to, to have a Frank Gehry house, they have to be willing to sort of let you run with it and, uh, and not really tell you what to do. How does that element of surprise work? 
It doesn't work quite like the way you said it, it implies, okay. okay? So it's not that. We, and we do very few houses because it's um, the only way I can do them is I become very emotionally involved with the whole mm -hmm. thing and with the people. And, but there has to be a 50-50. They have to have the courage to jump off the cliff with me because I don't know where I'm going. As our friend Wayne Shorter said, you can't rehearse what you ain't invented yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there is that trust. There's a money part of it. Right. How do you, uh, how do you, you know, they have to be willing to be explicit about how much money they want to spend and not uh, play games with that which a lot of them do. That's why I don't take the jobs, because I had one client that was carrying two, two book, basic, two account books. For a private home? Yeah, and so he was telling me things, and the contractor knew other things, and we, we weren't, and so, you know, it was just a game. It was a business guy who didn't wanna, who thought he was being clever. Most people have done their homework by the time they get here, and. And I'm very clear in the first meetings as to what it, the process is going to be. We're going to work on models. And the models are iterative. So I start with the blocks that are the size of their program, and then I, the site model, and I put it on the site. And then I look at the adjacent buildings, and then I take knowledge from the, the scale of the neighborhood. And then I take their program and fit it, start talking to them about how they want to live and how many kids they got and how many, you know, all that stuff. And the budget. And I try to get us straight. And we do comparative studies for buildings in that the particular area, uh, showing what a box costs and then what something more frivolous, if you will, would cost. And so we're very careful to explain in, so that they're not sandbagged. But if the other side is, is uh, not playing straight, not honestly involved, and then it doesn't work. So it's a partnership. It's a partnership. And that's why I don't do a lot of houses, because it's sleepless nights, I can tell you. And it's hard to explain to the client that's what's going on, that I I'm really struggling with this goddamn thing. I, I'm not sure where I'm going. I'm trying something that she knows about. She sees it. And then there's the added uh, dimension that we, we talked about a bit earlier, which is this, this has to work from the inside out as well. Right. People have to live in it. So it's, it has this, you know, there's movement that comes up in a lot of your work. I was at this restaurant in London called Sexy Fish a couple weeks ago. And I saw the I bar. just did the fish. Exactly. And I saw the bar of the fish and I thought, oh, this is some kind of fate because I had no idea you had done that in that restaurant and, and I happened to be there that night and then I, and I knew I was coming here. But there's this idea of movement and certainly there's nothing, you know, movement is critical in a home with how you, how one lives in it and this kind of inside out. And that very much also comes back to ethics in the sense that it, ethics is very much kind of the inside out. It's how we're going to stick to our, our own standards, stick to who, you know, who we are internally as we engage with the outside world. So I imagine, right. <laughs> I imagine trying to build that for someone else is quite, is quite a challenge. And then with the budget overlay and, and all the other practical considerations. Yes. And then the neighbors and then the building department. 
when you look back at this incredible story, the, the firm, your work, there are all kinds of different stories actually working together, your personal trajectory, is there one thing that you would say to the, to the public, this is what really mattered? The ultimate is family. That's the place where I question myself because I've been so focused on this place and the work and, you know, I don't take vacations that much. And it's just a feeling I have that, that maybe that's where I've been inadequate. Well, I guess honesty is, you know, playing straight with people, what you think and feel. Having those kind of relationships where you can discuss the delicate stuff. Well, it seems like you have a wonderful family and I, I saw your wife across the hall and um, so it's um, a practical question, if I may. I saw your blueberry-infused drink as you walked in here. How at 87 do you have the energy to keep creating and working at this pace and traveling at this pace and, and all the rest? Do you have a secret? As long as I focus on the work, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Well, it's exceptional and, and all of us are focusing on your work as well. Mr. Geary, it's been an honor. Thank you so much.